Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And today we're going to be talking about where we are in this country with abortion exactly four years since we voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. This anniversary is a time of celebration, certainly, and a time for reflection on an incredible campaign that persuaded the majority of Irish people that women should have control over their own reproductive destinies. But there is still a lot of unfinished business when it comes to abortion here in the Republic of Ireland. I'm talking, of course, about issues such as safe access zones, uh, the lack of provision in terms of maternity hospitals and GP services, and of course, that controversial three-day waiting period that campaigners are calling to be removed when, as promised, the legislation is reviewed. And in the North, where despite abortion being fully decriminalised, there are still major barriers in the way of women and girls accessing their reproductive rights. And in this episode, we're also looking even further afield to countries such as Poland and, of course, America, where women's rights are being eroded in a really devastating way. And you'll all be very familiar with that recently leaked document that indicated a majority of US Supreme Court justices plan to support overturning the historic Roe versus Wade case law that legalised abortion. And that is going to have such massive consequences for women and girls all over America, in particularly those those states where it is likely to be banned outright. So to explore all of this, I spoke to two women who've been campaigning for years on this issue on both sides of the Irish border. A familiar voice on this podcast, Alva Smith is a veteran activist and co-founder of the Together for Yes campaign. In 2019, she was named one of Time 100's most influential people alongside the other co-directors of Together for Yes, Ronnie Griffin and Orla O'Connor. And also we have Kelly Turtle, who's a feminist activist from Northern Ireland. She's a member of the Green Party and a PhD researcher at Ulster University. I began by asking Alva to tell us her thoughts from being out and about with campaigners on this four-year repeal anniversary. Well, first of all, I think that that amazement really is still there, that people, you know, were were saying to ourselves, that was a mighty thing that we here in Ireland did four years ago. And it was a huge leap. It was it was about sort of leapfrogging Ireland, I think, into some other kind of of dimension. And, uh, you know, the mood is one of those I was with today of being very proud of that. And also, also very determined because we understand that we took that one leap and everybody jumped with us. And and gratitude still, by the way, to the people of Ireland, full marks, my hat's off to them, to us, I suppose, really. But also that we are now, you know, pushing and having to to take another leap, um, which is really to get our uh, legislators and our health service providers and medical providers to come with that leap and to begin to provide 
uh, in a consistent, even manner across the country, all of the services that women need, which is not happening at the moment. And we can certainly look at more detail. And, you know, a real desire now and, and very clearly to ensure that abortion would be available for any person, any woman, any pregnant person who needs it right across um, Ireland, and we would like to share that obviously with our uh, co-activists and campaigners in the north, and think that all over the island that that would be the principle, and it would also be the practice. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much unfinished business. I think that was the hashtag of this repeal anniversary. Can you outline a little bit before we come to Kelly about the situation in the north about what that unfinished business is? Because at the, at the moment there are still people who need to travel for abortions, which is not what we kind of wanted to, to be able to say. Well, at the moment, you know, we know the figures for last year, six and a half thousand abortions here in Ireland, which is 98 percent of abortions. But that means that two percent are still happening elsewhere. And that doesn't include women who may not have been able to travel at all and therefore who didn't have the termination that they were that they would like to have had at that moment in their lives. And we never know who they are. So I think that. You know, we are pushing very hard at the moment with the abortion review, the review of the legislation, which is um, just just beginning at present um, to push for a widening of um, the, the, the a lessening of the restrictions is probably a fairer way of putting it, while at the same time saying service provision has got to improve. Um, and I think that when we look at the legislation personally, and I think a lot of people are like me, we don't see why there has to be legislation at all. Abortion should be something available under normal health service provision. But having said that, the thing is, we have a law at the moment. And fundamentally, we do need to push beyond the current gestational limit of, of 12 weeks because thereafter it's on request until then. But after that, it is really, really, really difficult uh, for um, a woman to get uh, an abortion here. And that's why we still have over 300 women traveling uh, to the UK, many of those traveling because of a fetal anomaly or a fatal fetal anomaly. Um, so that 12 week cutoff has really got to go. We still have the three day waiting list, which is so profoundly insulting, wasteful of women's time and resources and women don't so many women don't have the resources necessary to do two visits to their doctors. Let me also say it's very wasteful of the time of doctors and, and uh, clinics. And it was working well during uh, COVID to do it just by phone. But the point is, it shouldn't have to be done at all. It shouldn't have to happen at all. We're also obviously um, very concerned that abortion remains on our criminal statute books. So it it. We do need to completely decriminalise for um, all those who would uh, assist a, a woman to have an abortion, which would include doctors um, outside the terms of the law. That's it's a criminal offence. And that really comes into play when you look at the uh, fatal fetal anomaly clause where doctors may be unwilling to say they can't say medicine's not a precise exact meticulous science and certainly pregnancy is not an exact as, as so many of us will know it's not an exact day-to-day -day thing that you can say the baby will definitely be born and will definitely be whatever on such and such a day so at the moment it is very difficult I think for medical professionals to say well yes we can guarantee that that 
baby who sadly has uh, a, a fatal fetal anomaly will definitely die within 28 days of birth, if not before birth. So, you know, that has to go. That, that is such an arbitrary kind of cutoff. So that decriminalization needs to go anyway. And of course, we also need to look at how what I would call the refusal of care is working, what's called a conscientious objection, as if um, those who are seeking abortions or indeed providing them don't also have a conscience, but feel that their conscience is more to have a responsibility to respect the freedom of a woman to make her own decisions. I think that is equally conscientious. Um, so we would really like to see that being reviewed and um, a thoughtfulness and reflection on the way in which it is uh, implemented. Safe access zones, why have we not got the safe access zones? When exactly is the free contraception coming? Why is it only going to be for women up to the age of 24? It is not as if women stop having sex or cannot get pregnant after the age of 24. And in fact, as we know, um, in, I, I, I don't think I have the statistic on the, the tip of my tongue, but, you know, a very large number of abortions take place uh, in the late 20s and the early 30s. Women who have um, already a family and, and feel that their family is complete. So, you know, really, we're talking about this sense of having a service that is built to fit the needs of women so that all maternity units actually offer it. We only have, I think, 11 out of the 19 at the moment. That's a disgrace. If you look across the map of Ireland, you see from sort of Sligo, Mayo, right across the Midlands, down to Leitrim, Roscommon and on down. It's just, it's just a desert, Roisin. I mean, that is that is unthinkable and unpardonable. Only 408 GPs have registered as offering abortion services. Now, that doesn't mean that other doctors don't do it. They do, but women can't get to know about that until they ring the surgery for an appointment. So, you know, that has to be looked at again. And some of that then goes back to the health service getting its act together and cracking the whip as far as those maternity units are concerned, for which there is no excuse whatsoever. If they don't have funding for the equipment, the HSE needs to supply it. If they don't have sufficient staff, actually, sorry, I know the pressures on the system, staff has to be found. And I think, you, you know, so I, I do think that's very important, but also there is a job of training, in-service training and um, undergraduate training in medicine that needs to be looked at now. So fundamentally, we were saying, look, this is a system which is staggering to its feet to get up and running. But actually, it's not staggering fast enough. It needs to stop staggering and start running because women are getting pregnant and needing abortions every day. I was just thinking as listening to you, even though there is so much unfinished business, isn't it amazing that we're having this conversation about the fact, trying to widen things rather than, you know, when we used to have the conversation I, about exactly abortion Exactly what I said. We had a few little words outside the doyle this morning, which was lovely just to mark the occasion and very moving. I still, I can still feel the emotion welling up when I think of that day four years ago. And I was saying to, to the people assembled outside, look, the fact that you have, we have a placard that says unfinished business means that the business has now been started and we could never have started anything if all those hundreds and thousands of people hadn't actually 
got out there, young women, older women, young men, even older men, hadn't got out there and actually really done the work, done the, if they hadn't done the campaigning and the work necessary to talk with people right across the country to say that this is something that women really need in our everyday lives. Certainly it's a right, but even more immediately than a right, it is something which is simply a need. And it is not for any of us to be judging what, what people need in their lives. It's, you, you know, you need, you need, and women absolutely need that control of our own bodies because men have that control over their own bodies. So we need it in the interests of equality and justice. But yes, it feels very good to be shouting for more, 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 uh, and very important because that law, the, the premise is still, the thinking is still, among our legislators at least, that you have to, that abortion is okay, but you have to limit it. It has to be restricted. It has to be kept at bay. And that is a very false premise. It doesn't apply to any other kind of medicine. Why does it only apply to abortion? Because it is women. And, you know, power over women is trafficked through that power and control over our reproductive and sexual bodies. So there's still room. There's still a place. We still need to be out there as strong women's movement, feminists, calling for that to be moved. And obviously not only in Ireland. I'm loath to quote Fianna Fáil, but a lot done more to do kind of things just there. <laughs> well, actually, if Fianna Fáil would just slightly rephrase that and say, first step taken, a lot more steps to be taken now, it yeah. would be just grand. And if they would get a move on with their partners in Fianna Gael and in the Green Party, please, if they would get a move on, get cracking. I had a, a little hashtag there a while ago that just simply said, Brustic Earth. And then I changed it to Brustic Arab, showing my command of the Irish language, apart from anything else. Because, you know, we used to be told in school, Brustic Earth, Brustic Earth. Well, I feel like going in there and saying, you need a few civil society whips in here. You need us to get the whips out. Because it's extraordinary. We know that pregnancy is nine months. We know that it's imprecise. We know that it happens absolutely all the time and for all kinds of reasons. And somehow legislators persist in thinking that you can manage this with the law. And actually, you really can't. You really can't. So we're booking, they're booking against nature and the body and the physical in a way that just simply isn't logical. This podcast is brought to you by shapemoda.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Well, I want to bring Kelly Turtle in here now. Kelly, uh, thank you so much for joining us. You've had some good news recently in Northern Ireland, but can you just bring us up to speed about the situation in Northern Ireland and um, what the mood is among campaigners there as well? Yeah, well, it's been a very long couple of years. Um, we celebrated the full decriminalisation of abortion back in October 2019, which I think is really uh, significant in relation uh, to what we just talked about, um, the fact that it has been removed from the criminal law. And on paper, that means, um, you know, it should completely change how it is treated uh, within the medical profession, Um 
we obviously have regulations that also came in to accompany um, that change in the law. They were passed um, by the, the UK Parliament and they are fully human rights compliant. So on paper, we have everything to celebrate. But sadly, what has happened is that our institutions here in Northern Ireland have failed to put those legal changes into practice through the mechanism of commissioning services. So we had a, a health minister who um, only came back into post. Obviously, people will remember the three-year suspension of the Northern Ireland Executive and Assembly. Um, the health minister came back into post um, in January 2020 and obviously very quickly had a pandemic to deal with. Um, but regardless of those other pressures, it was evident from the start that he uh, was not going to progress the implementation of the new abortion regulations. Um, his uh, reasoning for that was that he felt it was a contentious issue which had to go to the full executive for approval. That's been disputed from the very beginning. There's been legal opinion given um, on both sides. The uh, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission has commented on it. Um, so in the recent announcement by the British Secretary of State that he's going to basically take that issue out of the Health Minister's hands, he's going to solve that problem by um, bringing forward more legislation that will allow the Health Minister to act on this issue without executive approval, that should have solved that problem. Although we've recently had communication from the Health Minister that he's still not satisfied with that and will be seeking his own legal advice. To be quite honest, from the point of view of the activists on the ground, it has long felt like um, a health minister that just doesn't want to act. And Robin Swan is on record, on public record himself, as saying that he has pro-life views and that he was not happy with the change in the law. And so it's very difficult on a human level to, you know, divorce that from what we're seeing. Um, ultimately, this is um, an executive that has completely failed in its duty to women and pregnant people who need this service. Um, what's happened on the ground in reality over the last couple of years is that very dedicated, conscientious providers within the health service, um, obstetricians and gynaecologists, sexual health nurses, have pushed on and provided services where they could. Um, it's generally one service within each of the five health trusts. Um, and those have happened because those providers, as I said, made it happen. There was no commissioning process. There was no ring-fenced funding. The Department for Health or the trusts themselves have really done nothing to advertise those services. Um, and at different periods over the last couple of years, some of the services have not been operational due to lack of resources, due to staff having to go back into other duties or COVID-related duties. So for a period of time, the Northern Trust had no services, and um, a woman who needed an abortion um, actually has taken a legal challenge and is being supported by the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, which contributed to some extent to the Secretary of State really stepping in. Um, currently, the Western Trust, which would be your whole kind of Fermanagh, um, parts of Tyrone, parts of uh, Derry, still have no service. Um, and what's been particularly um, bad about that situation is that up until very recently, if you lived in a trust that didn't have service, you weren't even allowed to access the service in another trust. On paper, now, there, you know, as activists, we, you know, grips like a lands for choice were supporting people to try and get services if they could through working with understanding, compassionate service providers. But 
um, in essence, anybody who lives lived in the Western Trust was having to either um, make use of abortion medication obtained through the internet, as was the case before all the, of the legal changes, or they were having to travel. Um, the Western Trust have just recently announced that since their service is still suspended, they are um, making arrangements with other trusts, neighbouring trusts, so that people can access services um, in Northern Ireland. But it's just been a nightmare. It also has been difficult for staff to get access to um, training, to be able to skill up towards providing some of those more complicated procedures, um, some of the later gestation procedures. I know that some of the healthcare professionals here have been to GB and, and gotten training, but again, without that central commissioning and that allocated resource, they're just not really in a position to make that, that service widely available to people. So it's a bit of a stalemate, really. I mean, on paper, everything should be there, but it's a real example of, you know, the legal change can never be the end goal. It has to be about access and meaningful access. And that's the thing. I mean, just listening to you and having heard what um, Alva had to say there, the fact that you actually, you know, on paper, have full decriminalisation. You have what we're still looking for that I don't even think Britain fully has, you know, the, the other sort of the rest of Britain. Um, but you have that. And it's so frustrating that you're being held to ransom again by these politicians who just won't do what they're supposed to do. I, I, among campaigners, I just can't imagine the mood. That just must be ra rage making. Like It's unbelievably frustrating. Um, and one of the things that goes along with it as well is this very frustrating narrative that's been around since the beginning of this process, that the change in law was imposed by Westminster, was imposed by the British government. And when you've been doing this work for over a decade, um, you just want to <laughs> scream from the rooftops. We fought for this. Um, the legislation came through the British government only as a result of, if you trace it back, it came through as a result of the United Nations um, CEDAW committee, the, the committee who oversee women's rights and discrimination um, against women. Um, and the only reason that the CEDAW committee conducted an investigation into abortion access in Northern Ireland is because we asked them to. Um, feminist groups, activist groups like Lands for Choice, the Northern Ireland Women's European Platform, we used the optional protocol that exists under that United Nations Treaty. We invited them to Northern Ireland. Um, we initiated that whole process, you know, so and, and that's not to mention all of the years of grassroots activism on the ground, the rallies, the uh, the training, the awareness raising that we've done with trade unions um, with the student movement. Um, you know, it's. It's it's insulting to have that narrative still persist that this was just something the British government imposed and the people of Northern Ireland don't want it. That's just simply not true. Um, it was hard fought for and hard won. Yeah, Alva, I'm sure you empathise with everything that um, Kelly's saying there. The frustration, absolutely. I mean, I I I really think that it is beyond it. It's sort of beyond even vaguely tolerable now. It has reached a a stage of being quite farcical in a way, where you have this small group of people putting impediment in, after impediment in front of the actual provision of services in the North or commissioning, as, as I think you refer to it there. Of course, it's enraging. It, it is also, it's enraging and frustrating for activists. It's also very cruel to women. And I, I do feel that quite strongly, that when you, in fact, I heard a, a, someone a doctor mentioning this this morning, saying that denying that 
access to an abortion to a woman is very cruel and is therefore a form of, of torture. And this, as we know from the UN committee, has, has already been, has, it has already defined it as such. So there is something that I find deeply, deeply bad and deeply wrong about what's happening in the North, because now that it is legal and they are still putting their feet down and refusing, that is, I think it's misogyny with a very big M. There's no doubt about it, no doubt about it whatsoever. I don't know how you all keep going, Kelly. I mean, the greatest admiration, great admiration. They're incredible people up there uh, doing amazing work. Um, and let's widen out the conversation a little bit, because as many of our listeners will know, uh, the US Supreme Court is planning to overturn the landmark Roe versus Wade ruling, which made abortion legal in the US. It's something that people were fearful of, but maybe just were hoping would never happen. But it's happening now. Alva, can you sum up just how devastating this is in in terms of access for Americans? I know you're heading to New York soon. You'll be over there talking to many activists, but just paint us a picture of, of how awful this is, really. Well, I mean, the, the possible demise, if you like, disappearance of Roe versus Wade from the Constitution has been on the cards now for really quite a long time. And the strategy of the anti-abortion people has been um, to achieve that, and they've achieved it mainly by chipping away at the access, at abortion access, abortion rights, and therefore abortion law and abortion uh, services in um, specific states around the country, with the result that even before this uh, ruling, this draft ruling was leaked there recently, uh, abortion has become very restricted in something like 26 or even 27 states. Um, with, you know, Texas and Florida being absolutely appalling, but other, other states as well, so that you now have a situation in the US where you could say, broadly speaking, California and the East Coast, by and large, until you get down south, is really, um, these are zones where women can access abortion. But elsewhere, it is incredibly difficult, if not actually impossible. So while Roe versus Wade and its removal from the Constitution has not yet impacted. Um, I think that women are already suffering those very devastating uh, consequences, which is of quite simply not being able to access abortion in their own state. So you take a woman who's living in Florida or maybe she's in Louisiana or somewhere, she is going to have to travel. And bearing in mind that, you know, the United States of America's infinitely bigger. I mean, how many times would Ireland fit inside the state of Texas, for example, that that travel is immense. So it is very expensive. It is very time consuming. So yet again, we are again looking at a situation where it is those who have least resources, fewest resources, those women who are poorest and most marginalised, who are most vulnerable, who are in a way in most in need are left hanging in those states. And it's just not okay to say, well, they can travel. They can't travel. Um, Now, some states, including New York and California, are fighting back by saying, we're going to strengthen the laws in our states. And I think that's a very, very, very important move. But it's not going to resolve the fundamental problem uh, for our set of problems for women in the states, because they have this new, you know, this shutdown really of access in, you could say, over half the country, while at the same time, 
um, there is very, 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 very little hope of them being able to move that back on to the constitutional agenda with a very right-wing Trump-nominated Supreme Court. So it does actually go to that point that we have to internationally, globally, move to a point where we recast abortion as a health need, as part of health services, and take it out of the whole sort of judicial and legislative uh, institution, which a lot of lawyers don't like. And, you know, they don't. But I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking now that really this is the only way to go. How else is this terrible problem of the US to be resolved? I mean, one thing I would say is that it's very interesting to see how um, those states, state, you know, like New York State and California, how determined they are to take the opposite, to pursue the opposite strategy to the anti-abortion people and say, well, you wanted to chip away at rights. What we're doing is going to make them stronger. Uh, I mean, it's all very well for the president, for Biden to say, well, you know, we'll pass a federal law. I don't think he's going to be able to do that with the Congress and the, the Senate as they stand at present and maybe not after the, the, the midterm elections. I think the other thing we have to say, which is devastating for women in the US, is that it is becoming, you know, it is such a broken society. We're speaking at a time when we know about those terrible killings of little kitties in an elementary school when you're really, you can only weep bitter salt tears for a country in which that is even vaguely possible and say there is such hatred and there is such division in the US and women will be and are being in this latest Roe versus Wade move, being caught right in the middle of that uh, divisiveness and controversy and cruelty and brutality. It It is an incredibly difficult situation. At the same time, I would say, you know, we must never lose hope. Colombia, Argentina, you know, their, their great, great, great legislation has, has come in. And I mean, these are wonderful, wonderful victories. So we have to take heart from that. We have to take heart from California saying, oh, excuse me, don't you dare tell us what to do. We're actually going to make our laws stronger, so strong that nobody's going to be able to break them. Fingers crossed. Maybe I shouldn't taunt fate with that. Um, and similarly in, in, in other states like New York. But really, I, I mean, it's almost at a point where when people say, well, what advice would you give us? You can't. We are in very different situations. All you can do is say our solidarity is there, our our love and our care and our commitment is there. Anything at all that we can possibly do, we will do. But we know how difficult it was down here. We know how difficult it still is in the north. Um, and we are living on a very, very tiny island with a very, very tiny population. We just have to fight harder and we have to fight harder as feminists and as a huge global movement. It's time to resurrect that movement with its feet on the streets, getting out there and really saying we are not going away until we get our rights. I mean, an interesting thing I was reading the other day is that if um, the case, if Roe versus Wade had not actually ultimately been um, won on the basis of 
privacy rights in effect just for a shorthand. If a case had been taken and there was a case on, on the books which was arguing for equal protection, was arguing under the equal protection clause, that there would have been a stronger right to abortion in the US. And I think that is very important for us to remember as well. And even here in this country, you know, to, to be saying to ourselves, we have to constantly strengthen what we're about. And my, my sense is the strongest way is for there to be medical professionals and health professionals who actually believe and to know that this is the way for um, abortion to go. And that that would free us up hugely to think about all of the other reproductive health issues that there are, because there are many, many here in, in, in the South, many in the North, many globally that we have to be thinking about. And yet we are, you know, we're, we're nailed uh, to thinking about abortion. And that is absolutely about power and control. And I come back to it. It is patriarchal power, patriarchal control. And it is about seeing women as less equal, less valuable, less important, i.e. subordinate to men. And that really, we have to stop that. We have to stop it. Absolutely. And Kelly, have you any thoughts on the global situation and on what um, Alva has been so eloquently outlining there, the situation in America? And I suppose the good news as well from places like Colombia. Mm. Yeah, well, when I look at what's happened in America, um, I think the best model we have or, you know, that we should look towards in terms of hope and and solutions would be the reproductive justice framework that um, has been present in the United States movement since the mid-90s. If anyone's not familiar with it, it was an approach to abortion rights and reproductive freedom that was um, developed by black women and and women of colour who could see clearly from the very beginning that the provisions that Roe versus Wade had had led to were classist, were racist. I mean, you know, as soon as abortion rights were granted, amendments like the Hyde Amendment were caveats added on to say, you know, yes, you can have this kind of very individualistic, neoliberal, privacy-based right to abortion, but we're not going to spend any public money on it. Um, There's absolutely no way we're going to ensure that every woman has has equal access to this, as, as Alva's already alluded to. So, um, the reproductive justice framework totally throws that on its head and um, and highlights that we have to have a, a an intersectional approach to, to reproductive rights and freedom to take into account all of the conditions of women's lives and the social justice issues that also need to be attended to. So um, they've been working for years to try and bring practical solutions. And, and it actually makes me think of the um, with the work that we've had to do here in Ireland, Ireland in recent years, because I know there are reproductive justice grassroots networks on the ground who are providing access to medication abortion, um, which is uh, may well very soon be completely illegal, but um, they have to do it. It's, a, it's an issue of, of survival because women will die if that is not... Um, accessible to them. We had to do exactly the same thing here in Ireland. Um, And I'm a part of a global network called Inroads that is an anti-stigma organisation, working to tackle abortion stigma globally. And I sat in a conference just two years ago with um, women from Uganda, from Ghana, um, from from places where their lives had been, their journey had been marked by unsafe abortion. 
And that is a totally different ballgame when you're talking about access to abortion. And you sit, I sat in a, in a meeting, it was a kind of an abortion speak out for women who'd personal experience. Um, you know, and I sat there and talked about my experience of a legal abortion, but in a completely safe context where I was able to get the resources to get on a flight to Liverpool and to be back home in time to kiss my children goodnight that evening. And I sat across from from friends and, and colleagues who almost died as a result of their abortion and who've watched family members die and who believe so strongly in access um, because they 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 know that the alternative is is death for so many women and girls. So I think we have to really look at those grassroots networks and see what they're doing and not necessarily be distracted by the big legal kind of uh, conundrums and, and the politics of it. Um, but also the analysis that's brought by re reproductive justice activists who are so embedded in um, in all of the other issues that are affecting communities because this this push against abortion rights in America is connected with the rise of the far right. It is connected with all of the other sort of structural oppressions that are, are being imposed right now that sometimes get minimised as culture wars. They're not culture wars. You know, they're... It's it's organised oppression of people, whether that's through the, the voter suppression that's now being kind of highlighted and, and brought to the fore, and all of the racial injustice that goes along with that. Whether it's the attacks on in some of these same states that are trying to outlaw abortion, are also attacking trans people, removing trying to outlaw trans affirming healthcare, removing trans children from their parents. I mean, these are all connected, and and reproductive justice as an intersectional movement is where we need to look to for for solutions. Well, I did want to say there, actually, Roisin, that it's also important for us not to forget our own European context, where, of course, there is such a, a dreadfully bad situation in Poland and, and actually also in Slovenia and where, um, you know, the rights are still not, rights are still in jeopardy in potentially in other countries as well, because, as Kelly says, of um, really quite far right wing governments are, are profoundly conservative governments and we have to hope um, that we, can, we we have to work to try and counter that here in Europe. It's not just about what happens um, elsewhere. But when you think about the number of um, women who die, I never have these statistics on the tip of my tongue, from illegal abortions um, around the world every year. I mean, that that is that's completely unnecessary. These are absolutely unnecessary deaths. There is not nearly enough emphasis on that. And I, I do think the World Health Organization could actually uh, take an even stronger line than it does on this. I mean, I, I have great regard for them, but I do think that we need at this point, the, you know, it's 2022, for heaven's sake, that there needs to be a much stronger line taken. Ava, just on that, on, on the who, um, you say there should be a stronger line taken. Why do you think that there isn't? Like, why is there still, is it back to stigma? Is it back to this idea that there there isn't this fully full belief that it is healthcare, that they have to tiptoe around it a little bit? It feels very depressing that even the medical people in the World Health Organization can't go full steam ahead with what they really believe and have to kind of maybe sugarcoat it a little for the, for society or, or what, what is stopping them from being stronger? Well, I mean, I think that probably Probably they would say they do quite a lot, that they do as much as they can. I mean, their programmes really are often very, very good indeed. Uh, but 
Well, I, I think it's a combination of everything that you've described there, probably. I mean, no global organisation is can be completely outside politics. I mean, obviously, they're, they're riven and uh, fed through with politics. So I think that there is certainly that in it. There are strong uh, pressures on them not to, to toe the line or to, to, you know, only go to a certain point on something like abortion with a view to trying to maintain, particularly a lot of the African states that were mentioned by, by Kelly, to try to keep them in the fold so that they are open to hearing the conversations and to having um, the programmes, the, the WHO programmes in their countries. So I think that there is often a balancing act in these things. And while, you know, an activist like me, it's all very well for me to sit here and say, well, you need to go in there with the hammer and actually bang down, um, you know, bang down the doors. They're saying, actually, sometimes it is better to be invited in the door and to be able to develop our programmes on the ground. So it is a much slower process. It's a much more cautious process. But I, I, I do feel that at this stage, I respect that, I understand it, but I feel we are somehow at a stage of um, development of an understanding of women's equality and rights, that more has to be done and more will have to be done much more firmly and in a much more radical way than has been the case. And I mean, it is quite interesting to see that what once was considered radical in this country is now actually not okay yet, but is kind of taken for granted. So, you know, just about this time, we also celebrate the uh, uh, same-sex marriage. And I think that, you know, these things are now integrated into the way in which the country works more or less well, you know, but they are there. And I think we have to look globally to see how can we achieve more of that kind of, of integration. And personally, it's something I feel. But one of my worries actually about the US is, of course, the impact that this will have and is already having globally. And there is part of me that feels we were jolly lucky to get ourselves over the line there in 2018. And, you know, I was going, phew, at least we did that because it's not that what happens in the US can directly impact but as we very well know, you know, they only have to sneeze over there before everybody goes, oh, my God, the US is sneezing. We better not do that. It adds fuel to the fire. That's the expression and the cliche. It's a really interesting point that, you know, other countries like Poland and other countries like that can be emboldened. And if we weren't in the situation we were now, would it have said it back years even? Who who knows? Somebody in the States, some broadcaster or another asked me recently, uh, do you feel this can have an impact on what you do here in Ireland? And I was saying, well, perhaps not directly insofar as, our, but because our legislation is so very new and because our constitution in that regard is so very new, it is highly unlikely, 99.999% recurring, etc., unlikely that they can do anything about it. But one lesson I have learned, and as you well know, Roisin, I'm now a very old uh, girl indeed at this stage. Veteran, a veteran. Yes, well, um, I have learned that they can't take it away from you. You can gain something, but you always have to say to yourself, it can be taken away. And therefore, constant vigilance is important. And that is exactly what they have done in the States. It is exactly what they did in Poland. Do not think they can't do it elsewhere. They can. So before women in so many parts of the world have even got their rights, they're already 
taking them away in those countries where they have them. So we are in a really, really, it's a crunch, it is a crunch time. And I think that Kelly is right uh, to point to the importance of a global reproductive justice and, you know, reproductive care uh, movement. It's almost like, let's get it, it's almost that it needs to come out of being talked about as a right or justice or anything. This is actually about whether or not we care about women and girls and and other people who can become pregnant. Do we care about them? And if we care about them, we don't want them to die. We don't want their lives ruined. We don't want them to be completely disrespected and devastated. But actually, a lot of people simply do not care and can't see beyond that. You know, it's interesting, just the contrast and the fact that we're marking and celebrating, I suppose, even though there is unfinished business, four years of repeal. I picked up the New York magazine. I'm just back from there and, and the cover is really striking. It's uh, It says, who becomes a murderer in post-Row America? And there's a number of great essays in it, one by the brilliant Rebecca Traster. But she's sort of talking about what you were saying there, Kelly, about... Um, this idea that, you know, um, rich and middle class and cis white women will still be able to get abortions, whatever happens with Roe versus Wade. But almost that that um, that message isn't necessarily the best one. I just want to read a couple of paragraphs from her piece. She says, uh, in time, abortions, illegality is going to affect everyone, you, your friends, your loved ones, your community, your kids and your parents. It's going to affect you if you are or someone, you know, wants an abortion. And it's frankly going to affect you even if you don't. And however well intentioned or important it is to acknowledge the decades of disproportionate and destructive damage abortion restrictions under Roe have done to poor families of colour. The recent mainstream emphasis on the notion that some Americans will come out of the end of Roe unscathed is a strategic mistake. If these past years with COVID have taught us anything, it's that if you tell middle class white people that they will be fine, they will not give a rat's ass about anyone else. And so this message intended to engender empathy and provoke action and commitment may instead have been an anethicising one. It may have permitted middle class white people with their significant political clout to sleepwalk comfortably as they have through all of Rose's existence into the waiting jaws of illegality. I just thought that was really fascinating. Kelly, what do you think about that message? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be using all tools at our disposal. Um, I can imagine that it's um, very difficult for the people who have been at the harsh end of this issue for many years um, to really feel that the mainstream media perhaps only cares about it when it affects well-off white people. Um, so I think there's always going to be a, an important job to be done to really um, amplify those more marginalised voices. But I can absolutely agree with with the author um, on the strategic intention behind it. I've been doing some work um, in Northern Ireland over the last couple of years where I've been trying to talk to people in religious communities in Northern Ireland. And one of the key messages, I guess, or conversation starters that I've used in that context has been to highlight to them that churches are full of women who've had abortions. Um, because it is that sense of you've got to bring it home to them and to their own community and their own familiar context. Um, and, and I think the same thing happened when it came to the um, equal marriage um, referendum and the public discourse around that people needed to understand that this is your family, this is your sibling, your child um, and I think that is starting to have an impact You know, I'm increasingly finding church leaders who will acknowledge that abortion is not an issue that sits outside of religious communities um, that it's something that um, I mean the, the 
line I always kind of use with people is when you preach against abortion on a Sunday morning, when you put out public statements that are con condemning abortion and then you're facing women who are sitting shamed into silence, what do you do about that from a pastoral uh, perspective? To try and bring the religious discourse away from one of um, ideologies and um, and you know posturing and bring it more to what Alva said a minute ago. This is about how we care for people. Um, and, and that is supposed to be a cornerstone of faith communities. So I've been doing some work with a group called Faith Voices for Reproductive Justice who want to totally reframe that conversation. Um, and I think that that's, you know, once the legal question was settled in Northern Ireland, albeit, as Alva said, it can always go backwards. But once it was settled, it opened up a space to have more nuanced conversations, to sit down across the table with people that I would never have talked to during the heat of the, the campaigning. Um, but that we can now sit and talk into spaces that are uncomfortable um, for both sides, uh, where we have something to learn from each other, um, where we can actually make sure that the public discourse doesn't become colonised with that vitriolic conservative backlash, um, because we are there as well and we're willing to go there uh, with people and to really listen. And I think that's the only way that we can protect the rights that we've won in the, in the current context. I just want to say thank you very much for that work that you're doing. That's so important. And maybe a final word, Alva, you talked about vigilance. We need to have that vigilance. But is there anything listeners can do, uh, even in solidarity as well with people in other parts of the world, with people in Northern Ireland and indeed, you know, to try and push that legislation that we need here forward? I think that we do have to get our own house in order. I think and our own house, I would see it as the whole island. So I think that we do need to support um, the, the work that activists are doing in the North as, as best we possibly can, um, because we really cannot hold our heads up with any degree of pride until that happens. And we have to keep the pressure on here. But one thing I, I, I would really say what I said before, I think, you know, we are at a time when a global women's movement is really important. And that is important for reproductive justice, but also uh, for economic reasons, for, for very many reasons. And to remind ourselves that the cover of that New York magazine, which they have rephrased as a wonderful Barbara Kruger um, paint, you know, a piece of work in red and white, very dramatic Barbara Kruger piece, which originally had as its caption, your body is a battleground. And to remind ourselves that our bodies are still a battleground and that we cannot give up our arms at this point. Well, that's a great way to end this. Um, I just want to say thank you, Alva, and thank you, Kelly, for all the work you've been doing and particularly just that we do celebrate today as well um, with the repeal anniversary, four years of repeal. It is wonderful. and um, But the fight continues and we have to keep fighting, as you said. Thank you both very much, Alva Smith and Kelly Turtle. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Alva Smith and Kelly Turtle for talking to me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at ITWomensPodcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>